Well, we are fewer than five hours out from the CNN Republican presidential debate. The lead starts right now. Nikki Haley and Governor Ron DeSantis facing off five days before Iowa voters set the direction of this race. Can either win over the Trump vote or is this a fight for second place? Plus, chaos on Capitol Hill when Hunter Biden shows up unexpectedly, crashing a hearing on holding him in contempt of Congress. You are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the Oversight Committee, spitting in our face. If the gentlelady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now. I think you should have decorum and courtesy and don't act like a bunch of nimrods. Then another surprise, Hunter Biden abruptly walked out. And as Donald Trump plans to be in court again tomorrow, a judge says not so fast on him taking the stand. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown. Jake Tapper is on assignment, and that is because it is debate night in America. Soon, Jake and CNN's Dana Bash will moderate the Republican presidential debate between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Now, tonight, these two candidates are searching for a breakthrough that could position them to become the one and only viable challenger to Donald Trump, who is a favorite to win his third straight GOP nomination. DeSantis has consistently poured his campaign resources into Iowa, while Haley trails Trump by only seven percentage points in New Hampshire. But in five days, the moment of truth in Iowa first. CNN's Kylie Atwood is in Des Moines, Iowa, with a look at how Haley and DeSantis are sharpening attacks on each other and Trump ahead of tonight's critical debate. With just five days to go until the Iowa caucuses, the stakes could not be higher. It's going to take a lot of courage. We were able to answer a lot of questions from Iowans. Tonight's CNN-Iowa debate is the first time that Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley will face off one-on-one. The Republican presidential candidates have been targeting each other for months, both eager to be the last one standing against former President Donald Trump. Haley's campaign hitting DeSantis with a new digital ad today. Ron DeSantis, losing and lying. DeSantis targeting his attacks on Haley last night. You have people like Nikki Haley that care more about the Ukraine border than she does about our own border here in the United States. As the two rivals trade jabs, they're also ratcheting up their criticism of Trump, the clear frontrunner in the Republican primary. Donald Trump's not willing to show up on the debate stage. Has he come to communities and answered questions? Has he gone to all 99 counties? Heck, has he even gone to nine counties? It is time to move past President Trump. We don't need anyone who's getting in their feelings. We don't need anyone that's getting personal about anything. And as Haley gains momentum, particularly in New Hampshire, where a CNN poll shows her only seven points behind Trump, the former president is going after her in a more pronounced way. Nikki would sell you out just like she sold me out. The former South Carolina governor has pledged to defend herself against Trump's attacks, but said she plans to keep her criticism focused on policy. For those that want me to hit Trump more, I just am not going to do it. If he lies about me, I'll call him out on it. I just think politics is personal enough. As the candidates deliver their closing arguments, Iowa voters are watching to see how they measure up against each other and the former president who won't be on stage. I don't think they'll have any choice but to go after each other a little bit to distinguish themselves. But ultimately, they're up against Trump. And I think they're going to definitely have to bring his name up and how they differ from Trump as opposed to uh, the other candidate. 
Now, the last person in that piece was Mark Freer. We spoke with him today, Pam, and he is still undecided. He's picking between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. He says he's not looking for one thing from either of them on the debate stage tonight, but he really cares about border security, about immigration. So we'll watch to see if either of the candidates say something on that topic that can lure Mark to go out and caucus for them. Pam? All right, Kylie Atwood, thanks, and welcome back from maternity leave. Let's discuss with Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. Hi, Congressman. Thanks for going on. We're going to get to tonight's debate in a moment. But first, there's been a lot of action on Capitol Hill today. Uh, let's start with spending. Yeah. Conservative GOP hardliners, they, they staged this. You could call it a rebellion on the House floor, taking down a procedural vote to show opposition to that spending deal. How long will conservatives keep the House in a state of paralysis? Well, look, this all depends. I mean, I wouldn't call it a state of paralysis. I mean, we're supposed to come up here and debate and deliberate. And uh, we but had now legislation can't move uh, forward because of the, the. Yeah. Well, we're looking for the right legislation to move forward, not just any legislation. And right now we want to see bills moving forward. They're going to actually cut spending like we said we would do. And a one point six six trillion dollar monstrosity. That's not what we signed up for. So we kind of body checked the the conference a little bit and said, hey, let's get back in here. Let's get in the room. Let's go figure out what we need to do. Look, we're all in generally agreement and same page of what we need to do. You have a razor thin majority. It's tough sledding. Uh, we got to go negotiate against a Senate and a White House that has no interest in constraining spending. They have no interest in adhering to the agreement that was bipartisan at 1.59. They want all the special side deals and the backroom deals. So, you know, we want to try to adhere to that, get it done, uh, cut spending. If we just do a CR for the rest of the year, funding through the rest of this year through September, we will spend at $1.564 trillion, $100 billion less than this. We will restore some order. Defense will be okay. Veterans will be okay. And we'll reduce the bureaucracy in this country. Most Americans want us to do that. Mike Johnson, for his part, um, he was just on Fox saying, look, I agree with Chip Roy. I'm not particularly thrilled about this deal. But the bottom line is this is a divided government. As you just said, yeah. there is a very slim majority in the House. You've got a Democrat-controlled Senate, a Democratic president. This is just kind of what you have to do to get the deal done. Um, what do you say to that? Yeah, I think you should take the House majority for a bit of a spin and uh, go over to uh, Senator Schumer, the president, and say, look, I mean, we control the power of the purse. Uh, we had an agreement, a bipartisan agreement. It was signed, uh, and the president signed it into law, puts caps into place, adhere to the caps. I mean, I look, and it was by a majority of, of Republicans and Democrats. So we just adhere to the caps. We'll get to the spending restraint that we should put in place, and we can move forward. And I think it's what we ought to do. And if they want to shut down the government, that's on them. Look, by the way, this well, is no, a— Well, no, it's, it's on, it's on, it's not uh, on them. It's, it's on uh, it's on you and the other hardliners, uh, no, no, uh, Republican no. oh, hardliners wait, wait, who are standing in the way. Of why this. is it? Why would it be on us? Well, why Johnson would it be on has us already announced the top lines for the spending, a potential spending deal with Democrats. I mean, right, there's which, already been so, right, which is a violation of the agreement. So why would it be on us? Well, they would be the would ones say, choosing shutdown. They would say no. And by the way, no, this would be Geo, this would be on GOP hardliners if the government shuts down. No, why? Because what because, we said is there's an agreement from last year. We should stick to it. Like the whole point well, here is. And, and if Speaker you're Johnson act, would say we are sticking to it. And I've gotten $16 billion in extra spending cuts and $30 billion total from what Democrats wanted initially. And we are sticking to, to the deal that was struck. What do you it's, say to that? It, it's not. It's $1.66 trillion using a bunch of side deals and gimmicks to expand the size of the government well over the omnibus spending bills of last year. And look, let's be very clear. Uh, this is a big give for me 
to say that I would even sit down and consider that when the Texas border is wide open. I want to see our border secure first. So for me to sit down and say, look, I'll consider a CR through the end of the year that would adhere to the caps so we can govern in this divided government, uh, that's actually a give on my part because Texas is under assault by a recalcitrant administration and a Secretary of Homeland Security who was thankfully grilled today by Mark Green for lying to me under oath while people get assaulted in Texas. And we're going to talk more about the border later on, but, but I want to ask you before we get to that, you have openly flirted with this idea of making a motion to vacate your new speaker, Mike Johnson, as we talk about. He makes spending, if he makes a spending deal that isn't tough enough on the border and like what you've laid out, is his job in jeopardy today? And what I've said is that everything's always on the table. I mean, that's the whole point of having rules so that you can be able to hold the body to account. Uh, nothing should be off the table. I, but by the way, as you know, I was not itching to move the motion to vacate in the fall. I was opposed to that move. I didn't agree with it. I don't want to do it here. Mike's a friend. What I want the Republican conference to do is stand up and fight. Actually do what we said we would do. And that's what I want to see out of this. And so, look, everything should be on the table today. We took down a rule uh, saying, look, guys, let's sit down, do our job, spend at the level we're supposed to. The people I represent, they want us to cut spending, secure the border. That's what we need to do. All right, let's talk about that very quickly. I want to ask you about this impeachment hearing today for Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the border crisis. Uh, You had legal expert uh, Jonathan Turley, who has been a GOP witness in the Biden probe, frequently cited by conservatives. He wrote, quote, no current evidence, there is no current evidence that he is corrupt or committed an impeachable offense. He could be legitimately accused of effectuating an open border policy, but that is a disagreement on policy that is traced to the president. He also says this could set a dangerous precedent by impeaching cabinet members that you don't like because of policy disagreements. Are you concerned you're setting a troubling precedent here? Yeah, no, first of all, I mean, I'd like to see his specific definition of what rises to the level of impeachment, right? That is something that's debated over time memoriam. The fact is, is when you violate your oath, when you do not take care to see that the laws are faithfully executed, when in fact you have American citizens who are getting harmed, you have people dying from fentanyl poisonings, you have wide open borders that are empowering cartels and empowering China, that is a blatant disregard of his duty. And importantly, He did, in fact, lie to me under oath when I presented him with the statute that says that you are supposed to maintain operational control of the border. He said one thing to me in a Judiciary Committee, went to another committee and went over to the Senate and said totally different things. And that actually matters because he was trying to tell the American people that they were, in fact, having operational control of the border, and they didn't. And he was using the language to try to skirt around it. I pressed him on it. Mark Green did a great job at Homeland Security today demonstrating that, in fact, he did lie to us under oath. All right, so, so I want to just pick apart a little bit of what you said, because some of, some of what you said, DHS has come back and said, look, no laws have been violated here. You know, this has been a, continuum, a continuing issue, fentanyl poisonings coming across the border, so forth, that they say they've done more to combat the fentanyls coming, fentanyl coming across the border in the last two years and the last five years prior to that. That is what DHS is saying. And I, I actually even spoke to a former Trump administration DHS official today um, who says, look, I don't like the way the border is being run by the Biden administration. I disagree with it, but it would be more productive to work on policy enhancements than waste time with an impeachment. What do you say to that? Well, number one, uh, we are working on policy enhancements. That's why we passed H.R. 2, the best border security bill that we've ever passed off the House floor. It is sitting over the Senate and languishing because the Senate, Democrats and the president don't want to secure the border. But also with with respect to they say they have a supplemental that that they that they have proposed with more funding for border patrol agents and so forth. Um, They want more funding so they can process more people. They don't want to actually have the laws in place to allow us to actually secure the border. And in fact, we do have laws in place right now, which they are blatantly ignoring. And the fact of the matter is that when they want to talk about fentanyl... Of course, the White House says no laws are being ignored. This is about policy disagreements. But I want to make sure we, we... 
I tell you what, I tell you what, I will send you the Secure Defense Act chart that I put up in front of Alejandro Mayorkas. You read it and you tell me if they're violating the laws. It's plain black letter text and he's violating the law. And by the way, about fentanyl, six kids in the school district in which my family resides die from fentanyl poisonings last year. So for those who are Which saying, oh, look at us, oh, look at us, we're doing and so much no better on fentanyl. Said, no one they says come that down. that's still not an issue. I want that's Alejandro Mayorkas to come down said. and talk to my kid the, the kid, the parents of those children, and look them in the eye and say, I'm doing everything I can to stop fentanyl pouring into the communities that are killing Texans. But we you have, have to admit it's also poured in under Republican administrations too, correct? At, at much smaller numbers. And by the way, the number of people coming across the border in at the end of the Trump administration because of Remain in Mexico and because of Title 42 was far lower, like 30,000 a month. We had 302,000 people who were, who were apprehended in December. 302,000. And Mayorkas just went to the border. He admitted they're releasing 85% of them. That's according and, to Fox News, sources telling Fox News. Yeah, I, well, it's according to the Border that. Patrol I agents I talked to. I called the Border Patrol agents. They said it was okay. more than 85%. That's the truth, and we know it. And okay. the evidence bears it out. All right, let me just ask before we go, because it is important to get your take on the debate. Of course, you've been pushing for Ron DeSantis. Um, what do you want to see from him tonight? Oh, look, I just want to see the governor keep doing what he's been doing since I've been on the campaign trail with him. And as long as that he's been in office, that's standing up for the people that he represents. He's done a phenomenal job. There's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy. He's on the right trajectory. Uh, with all due respect, Governor Haley's been stumbling. It's hardly been a day over the last two weeks where there hasn't been a gaffe where she's, you know, basically mocking the people of Iowa, saying the people in New Hampshire need to correct Iowans. Uh, I think we'll see tonight in the debate uh, some pretty good exchanges. And look, I I'd love to see him ask her about Boeing. While she was sitting on the board of Boeing and they were giving out, you know, stock buybacks, uh, what was going on making sure that, you know, bolts aren't missing and that we don't have plane windows blowing out? Look, we need to restore American manufacturing. We need leadership. We don't need people who are more interested in corporate cronyism than holding corporations accountable and standing up for the little guys out there who want to get by in life, dying from Biden inflation, dying from the fact that we have all these EV mandates and all these regulations that's killing them. We need somebody who can lead an office, and that's, that's Governor DeSantis. He's been knocking it out on the campaign trail in Iowa. I look forward to joining him again uh, probably on Friday. I'm not sure. It depends on what we're doing here. But the bottom line is he, he's not pulling so well. When you look at like New Hampshire, and if he doesn't win Iowa, he's put all, all of his, his eggs in that basket. If he doesn't win Iowa, you think it's over for him or no? I mean, Nikki Haley's making up a lot of ground, especially in New Hampshire. I think only seven points behind Trump. Well, we'll see when the people go into the voter booth and they make a decision. I mean, right now we know on the ground there's a lot of enthusiasm for Iowa. We have 1,600 uh, captains, precinct captains who are enthused. We were talking to him on the phone the other day. Casey and I were driving through southeast Iowa when the governor had to go back to Florida for the state of the state. They're enthusiastic. We have thousands of people who are, you know, engaged uh, that have already signed their cards to caucus for the governor. Uh, look, what's on the ground is very different than what's in the polls. So I think we'll see that on Monday. All right. Republican Congressman Chip Roy, thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, ma'am. God bless. The CNN debate is tonight, only five days out from the Iowa caucuses. Watch it live right here on CNN tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. A congressional hearing today over President Biden's son, Hunter, got real explosive real fast. You have no balls to come up here and... M Mr. Chairman, point of inquiry. Mr. Chairman... Um, if the, the lady recognized If the general lady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now, Mr. Chairman. Let's take a vote and hear from I'm Hunter speaking. Biden. What are, are you afraid of? To speak? Hold on. Afraid? That got fiery. Hunter Biden's surprise appearance igniting an uproar among House Oversight Committee members who were starting proceedings to hold him in contempt of Congress for not complying with the subpoena for testimony. CNN's Monty Raju has more on today's contentious ordeal on Capitol Hill. 
House Republicans moving to hold the president's son, Hunter Biden, in contempt of Congress, but not before he appeared on Capitol Hill unexpectedly, infuriating the GOP and setting off a sideshow. You are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the Oversight Committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? You have no balls. What a coward. I think that, uh, that Hunter Biden should be arrested right here, right now, and go straight to jail. Yes, I'm looking at you, Hunter Biden, as I'm speaking to you. You are not above the law. Debacle. I just, you know, he's shows up. It's just a show. He should have had his ass over to the judiciary hearing. Because we're doing a contempt over there. Two House committees moving to refer the matter to the full House next week, coming as Hunter Biden's legal team implements an aggressive new strategy to take on Republicans directly. What are they afraid of? Republicans had subpoenaed Hunter Biden to appear before a private deposition in December. But he defied that subpoena, saying he would only testify publicly. That offer rejected by Republicans, who had demanded he first testify behind closed doors. We will not provide Hunter Biden with special treatment because of his last name. All Americans must be treated equally under the law. Hunter Biden already facing a criminal indictment for tax violations and gun charges and set to appear in court for an arraignment on Thursday. Chairman Comer made an explicit offer that people like Hunter and had, like him, the option to attend a deposition or a public hearing, whichever they chose. Hunter chose a hearing where Republicans could not distort, manipulate, or misuse that testimony. Honor. The chaotic scene on Capitol Hill comes as Republicans are moving ahead with an impeachment inquiry into Hunter Biden's father. In my opinion, this committee is not interested in prosecuting Hunter Biden. The facts show that President Biden profited from his name and the person that arranged the deals was Hunter Biden. But so far, they do not have the votes to bring articles of impeachment as they continue digging for anything connecting Hunter Biden's business dealings to the president's actions, something they have yet to prove. I think it should go to the House floor for a vote, but I don't know if we have the will to do it. I don't know if it would pass. And that is the reality facing Republicans on Capitol Hill. The many conservatives are itching to impeach President Biden, but simply there are there aren't the votes to do just that. A number of Republicans in swing dis districts, in particular, are not there yet. But they are there on a different question: impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who faced his first impeachment hearing just today and just moments ago. I asked the chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee if he believes he has the votes to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. He said there will be the votes to impeach Mayorkas in the weeks ahead. Pamela. All right, Monty Raju on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. So how much is Hunter Biden a political liability in this 2024 election year? Plus the sharp words about the president from an influential voice who has endorsed Biden in 2020. What's he saying now? We're gonna get a response from the Biden campaign. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with our 2024 lead as President Biden looks to show voters why he should be reelected. An influential voice who endorsed him back in 2020 is not 100% on board now. Radio host Charlemagne the God. He explained why to CNN's Abby Phillip and in rather blunt terms. Listen. I think President Biden historically has been a, a lack of lack of a better word, a shitty elected official. But, you know, Donald Trump is the end of democracy as we know it. So you'd vote for Biden again? I'm not saying either or. Let's bring in Cedric Richmond, former congressman from Louisiana and now co-chair of Biden's reelection campaign and a senior advisor for the Democratic National Committee. Thank you so much for coming on, Congressman Richmond. Now, say what you want about Charlemagne the God. He is expressing how many voters feel. In his words, he also said Democrats struggle with messaging and said Biden's attempt to court black voters at black churches and soul food restaurants, as Biden did in South Carolina this week, is not effective anymore for Democrats. What is your reaction? What do you say? Well, one, Charlemagne is a respected voice in the black community, too. I agree with the main thing is what he said is that Donald Trump is the end of democracy as we know it. And as he talks about uh, where we campaign, how we campaign, and that today is different and we have to message different, I think he's right. Uh, but my overall point will be that the president is going to go everywhere uh, where Americans are facing and struggling with uh, ends right now. So in the black community, he went to Mother Emanuel Church, which is a significant uh, place of importance, uh, and he's going to tout his message. So here's the important part, and I think Charlemagne was hitting on this. You have to tell people what you did why you did it and how it benefits them. And so, one, he expressed a threat that Donald Trump poses, which Charlemagne uh, also expressed. But he also talked about the investment in HBCU, $7.3 billion, the fact that black wealth is, went up 60%, that the racial wealth gap is the lowest it's been in a long time, that he reduced the price of insulin at $35 to our seniors who have given blood, sweat, and tears to protect this democracy. And so whether it's the infrastructure bill, lead pipes, there is a plethora of things that the president and vice president did to support African-American communities in the country at large. And you have to go there, you have to look them in their face, and you have to tell them uh, what you did. And you have to tell them what you're going to do in the next term. And so we uh, reduce student debt or forgive student debt for 3.6 million Americans, but we have more work to do. And we will do that in the second term so that we cancel all student debt. Uh, so that's what the president was doing. But why hasn't the president been effective then with the messaging touting those accomplishments, as you say, um, to constituents, to you know voters of color that Charlemagne is speaking on behalf of essentially when he says, look, I'm frustrated. I don't feel like he's done enough and what he's doing now just isn't cutting it. Well, the truth is, Charlemagne and I share frustration. Mine is a little bit different because I believe that the president is doing and the vice president their role, which is President Biden wakes up every day trying to figure out how he can make this country better for you, for your community, for your families. And he keeps his head down and he does the work, which is why he has so many accomplishments. Uh, it's up to people like me, political pundits and others to make sure that we talk about those accomplishments and help them break through. Look, this is election year. 
This is the year you go out and tell people what you were able to do that you promised to do. And then you tell them what you're going to do in the next four years if you're reelected. And so now you will see the president out there talking about the things that he was able to achieve. And look, we will be able to remind people on day one when we came in office, 50 percent of the schools in this country were closed. Kids were learning from home. And we will remind them of the Trump years that has been soundly rejected since 2018 and in 2020. I want to talk about tonight's CNN Republican debate before we let you go. Of course, it's between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Donald Trump's uh, dueling town hall will happen at the same time. How is Biden and the campaign preparing to respond to the attacks against him tonight? Look, it's the same thing we saw back in, um, 20, in 2020. Uh, Trump made all of his attacks personal, but what you won't hear them talk about they won't talk about you. They won't talk about your family. They won't talk about your community. They won't talk about protecting freedom. They won't talk about standing up for democracy. They won't talk about how to lower child poverty, which we reduced in half in the first year. So they're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, but it will not at the end of the day talk about a family. So if you look at uh, what we've been able to do in terms of lowering costs for families, in terms of empowering families and talking about bringing manufacturing jobs back to America, looking at new business startups, all of those things we will get to go around and tout. But at the end of the day, I think what you're going to see tonight is that Republicans are going to continue to cater to the top 1% in big corporations, and they're going to make things personal. And we're going to continue to talk about the American people. How do we preserve this fragile democracy? You'll see Trump double down on rooting for an economic crash. Who does that? Who roots for pain for American people just for political gain? So that's what you're going to see. But you're going to see us continue to talk about preserving democracy, building an economy that works for everyone. You're talking about recent comments Trump made about the economy, saying he hopes it doesn't crash under his watch. All right, Cedric Richmond, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, as we count down to tonight's debate, has the Republican side of this race now become a fight for second place? We're going to talk about that up next. We are back with a live look at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, where the stage is set for tonight's CNN presidential debate, Republican debate, we should say. Let's bring in Jonah Goldberg and Ashley Allison. Great to have you both here. Jonah, to start with you, obviously the pressure is on Ron DeSantis in particular to blunt uh, Nikki Haley's momentum here. In your view, is this a race for second place? Well, I mean, objectively, it sort of is, although just in the last 48 hours, it now feels like there is a scenario, not a likely scenario, but a scenario in which Haley could end up winning in New Hampshire. And that blow to Trump's inevitability and the way he would respond to it would um, possibly create some sort of opening. There's this buzz about how Christie might drop out. Um, and so there's really a feeling of momentum around Haley. People in New Hampshire are going to be watching an Iowa debate. It's not like it's only broadcast in exactly. Iowa. So I think that's going to be going on in the background. Watch it on CNN. We're, right. we're hosting the debate. Exactly. So a little plug there. Um, Ashley, there's an editorial that was published today in the National Review, and it's arguing it isn't too late for Republican voters to rethink nominating Trump. But they argue one reason his rivals haven't had much traction is that Trump squashed any electability argument with his strong polling against President Biden. And they write, the Democrat is so weak he could lose to Trump but the former president is still a risky bet compared with another Republican candidate without his baggage. What is your response to that? 
Well, the polling does give Trump maybe some wind in his sail. But if I was Nikki Haley, if I was Ron DeSantis, I would say he's already a loser to uh, Joe Biden. The problem is they aren't going to say that because they won't definitively call the election for 2020 because they don't want to upset the MAGA base. But if they just took it to Trump and was like, he's a loser, he'll be a loser again, and did that when they first announced I don't think Trump would be polling where he is if the whole field attacked him the way Chris Christie um, and Asa Hutchinson were earlier. Yeah, you're seeing Ron DeSantis kind of ratchet up the attacks a little more. But I mean, yeah. this has been a more a newer phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, there are a lot of shoulda, coulda, wouldas going back to the beginning and all of this. But it, the basic dynamic is, is that nobody wanted to offend Trump's base, his fans. And they tap danced around that for a very long time. I think the thing that really just de destroyed a lot of their strategies were the indictments. It's that it, there was this rush to you know, circle the wagons around them. They refused to use the indictments as saying, see, this is the problem that you get with this guy. Okay. It's just all this drama. And now the electability argument, which I think is the best way to move Republican voters at this point who don't want to hear bad things about Donald Trump, it just gets all muddied. But it, it's absolutely true. I mean, look, Biden unveiled his you know, threat to democracy thing as the fundamental theme of his campaign. That would not work on Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or any of these people. Um, but it would work on Donald Trump, arguably so, which is why Biden's doing it. Let's talk about messaging. Um, it's a good, good pivot to, to the conversation I just had with former Congressman Cedric Richmond, top advisor to Biden. Um, and, you know, he gave this response to, to radio host Charlemagne the God and why he regrets endorsing Biden. And he basically agreed in large part with, with Charlemagne in terms of his criticisms when it has to do with messaging of what President Biden has done for um, black voters, for instance. Were you surprised by that? Well, yeah, look, you don't live or die by one poll, but there seems to be some traction that people are saying, particularly in the black community and with young voters, that the message and what Joe Biden has done for them, they are not feeling the impact. And it is not because this administration has not done things for the black community or for young folks, but they do need to get out there. And so Cedric Richmond, I agree with Charlemagne and I agree with Cedric uh, Richmond just said is that they have to get out there and tell people what Joe Biden has done for them. But that is not going to be enough. And I think that is what Charlemagne was also getting at is that you have to tell me what you're going to keep doing for me. So often Joe Biden says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Well, I think black voters are starting to say, don't ask me to just rely on what you say you're going to do. Actually do it for me and tell me what you've done for me and make me feel it. And if the Biden campaign can do that and the administration can do that in this last year, I think Joe Biden can close some ground. But they do have work to do. And I, I'm, that's why I was happy that the former congressman agreed, but I was surprised that they were, that he acknowledged that. Yeah. acknowledged it, right. Um, Joan, I want to go to you because there's been a lot of action on Capitol Hill today. Moments ago, we heard from Congressman Chip Roy, the Republican, saying a motion to vacate Speaker Johnson should be on the table over objections from the House Freedom Caucus to a budget deal he cut with Democrats. Um, in an article that you just wrote for the dispatch, you say if Republicans want a better deal, they need to win more elections. Explain that. Yeah, look, it's, it's, just, it's a math problem. The reason why Johnson is doing what he's doing is the same reason why Kevin McCarthy was doing what he was doing. They, they now have basically a two-seat majority um, for the Republicans. There's just no leverage. There's no wiggle room there. Um, and the problem is, is that you cannot expand your caucus so that you can actually get things done when the people who are defining the brand of the Republican Party 
are out there setting their hair on fire, doing like the stuff Nancy Mace was doing today in the, the Hunter Biden thing, you actually need, I mean, I know it's a radioactive thing to say on the right, but you actually need more rhinos. You need more squishes. You need more Republicans from moderate districts that builds up the size of your co coalition. Instead, and this is, I think, the problem with both parties, both parties behave as if the voters, the only voters they're afraid of losing are their base voters. The whole point of the base is the base is always with you. The people that you need to attract in popular in elections to build a majority coalition are the swing voters, the people in the middle. And yet the incentive structure, the, the sort of media complex, make it very difficult for Biden to pivot to the center and make it very difficult for Republicans to be appealing to anybody who doesn't come from a district that's already 20% Republican, you know, 20% lead Republican. What do you think? Well, I think... It's a little different for, different for Democrats and Republicans and then independents. I think for Democrats, and this is the concern that we just were speaking about with black voters, is independents will vote Republican or Democrat. But the Democratic base just might not vote. Right, and sure. that is a problem. And so it's not that they're going to flip parties. It's like, will they show up because they feel like you're the candidate for them? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and we've seen some of that reflected in the polling, yeah. right? So, all right, thank you both. Appreciate that conversation. Well, Donald Trump prepared to speak in his own defense and his civil fraud trial tomorrow. Why the judge today said that isn't going to happen and blames Team Trump. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them on Be My Guest, the podcast. New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Now to a hybrid law and justice and politics lead. The judge presiding over former President Trump's New York civil fraud case just swatted down Trump's request to speak during closing arguments tomorrow. Just yesterday, Trump dropped into his D.C. Court of Appeals immunity hearing as he tries to seize the spotlight five days before the Iowa caucuses. CNN's Caitlin Polans has a story. So why did the judge deny this request, Caitlin? Well, he says because nobody told him that Trump was going to follow the rules of the court. Campaign is court in the world of Donald Trump for a lot of these days. Yesterday, he made a speech after the court. Uh, and tomorrow, what was set up to happen and what is set up to happen are closing arguments in this civil fraud trial. He's already been found liable, he and his businesses, by this judge, Judge Arthur Engeron. And Judge Engeron is set to hear the arguments over how much Trump and his companies should be fined or face consequences for defrauding the state of New York. Uh, related to their business practices. So what happened over the past week was a back and forth where Trump's lawyers told the judge, Donald Trump wants to speak and address the court as part of these closing arguments. Now that on its own is extremely mm -hmm. unusual. It doesn't happen. Defendants don't do that in arguments. And the judge said, okay, if he wants to, he must follow the rules of trial. He can't bring in new evidence. He can't testify. He can't offer commentary and he can't make a campaign speech. I will cut him off if he does that. And they went back and forth. And ultimately today, the judge says, OK, your deadline is noon. If Trump wants to speak, tell me by noon today and tell me that he will agree to comply with all of my rules of the court. No response. And so the judge said, Donald Trump is not going to be speaking in court tomorrow. It doesn't mean he won't be there and speak right. on his way in and out of the courtroom. But in the closing arguments itself, 
won't be there. And he now has this opportunity uh, to attack the judge further and say he disagrees with how the judge has handled this trial. Wouldn't be surprised if that happens. All right, Caitlin Polans, thank you so much. This just into CNN, getting some news here. A source tells CNN that we should stand by for a major announcement from the campaign of Chris Christie. He is expected to speak at the top of the hour. More 2024 coverage ahead right here on CNN. We're back in just a moment. Back with our world lead. Although the war between Israel and Hamas is a half a world away, Jewish and Muslim Americans are experiencing the effects firsthand. Anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. have skyrocketed since the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. And according to new data by the Anti-Defamation League, a 361% jump when you compare the same time periods in 2022 and 2023. Islamophobia is also up between October and December 2023. The Council on American Islamic Relations says it saw a 172% increase in requests for help and reports of bias compared to a similar period in 2022. Now behind those numbers are real people experiencing real fear in the communities they call home, fear for their family members. And as CNN's Paula Newton reports, this alarming trend does not stop at the United States' northern border. A morning ritual, school drop-off at Yeshiva Gadola. Students hustle in and, as usual, Rabbi Menachem Carmel is meeting them at the door. It's a typical morning in Montreal, right down to the snow-covered streets. Except for this, police watching every move. In November, Montreal police say the school was targeted not once, but twice by gunfire. Students were not there at the time. There were no injuries, but also no arrests so far. For Rabbi Carmel, an American and the grandson of Holocaust survivors, the fact that it could happen here... It's scary, scary. It made it so shocking um, to have such an act in such a community. It's like, it's almost like we're in a bubble here. The fact that as a, as, as a religious school, very identifiably Jewish, that this becomes the go-to place to, to, um, to protest, to, to express your, your anger is, is so misconstrued. It's, it's hurtful. And police across Canada say it's far from an isolated incident. Last week, a Jewish-owned deli in Toronto was the target of an arson attack. No one was injured, no arrests have been made, but Toronto police call it a tipping point. This is a criminal act. It is violent, it is targeted, it is organized. Canada's Prime Minister has admitted there is newfound fear on Canadian streets. We're seeing right now a rise in anti-Semitism that is terrifying. Canadian authorities say hate-inspired incidents have spiked since the Hamas attack in Israel, <laughs> punctuated by tense protests across the country. Before you go to that tipping point, try and bring it back, try and pull it back. Rabbi Saul Emanuel voices concerns not just as a parent with children at the targeted school, but a community leader looking for security and less impunity. It's become accepted that you can go after any Jewish target. That real fear of being targeted simply based on your religion is one shared by many Muslims here as well, who have also reported an increase in hate-inspired incidents. It is much worse than uh, the 9-11. Samir Majoub speaks to us in a Montreal mosque 
that was recently targeted with hateful graffiti. When we refuse hate, when we refuse violence, when we refuse intimidation, we refuse it against each and every individual. In this Montreal synagogue, they pray for peace in Israel, astounded by how that faraway war is affecting their everyday lives. Our day schools, our synagogues have always been kind of, you know, sacrosanct. And sacrosanct uh, no longer, Pam. Now, of course, you and I as parents can obviously relate to how alarmed people here are. We're at the school right now. Pickup uh, is just wrapping again with that added security. But what's going on here really does resonate around the world and for good reason. As Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, look, if Canada can't figure this out, a, a place that has such rational tolerance in most times, what corner of the world can figure it out? Pam? All right, thank you so much, Paula Newton. Uh, we've got some big news coming on uh, coming up about Chris Christie. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Big news coming into CNN. Chris Christie expected to drop out of the 2024 presidential race. About to make this announcement, according to a source talking to CNN. I want to go to our back to our panel. Ashley, first to you, your reaction. It was always a long shot for him to get the nomination. It helps Nikki Haley in the long run in New Hampshire. I hope he still keeps throwing punches at Donald Trump if the other two folks won't do it in there. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see Christie endorse Nikki Haley because I think an endorsement would hurt for a guy who's got net negatives of like 40 points. But his voters will probably go to Nikki Haley. And according to the CNN poll, that would conceivably, if, he gets, if she gets all of them, that would put her in front of Donald Trump in New yep. Hampshire. It was interesting. We had Governor Sununu on in New Hampshire yesterday who said that there were people on his leadership team, Christie, saying, drop out, you should drop out. Uh, Christie responded to that today saying he was a liar. Now we're expecting this announcement, according to a CNN source, that he is going to be dropping out indeed. All right. Thank you both. And much more on this breaking news right now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.